Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Right now, we don't have enough money uh, for fourth doses if they're called for, booster shots, additional booster shots for all Americans. We don't have the funding if we were to need a uh, variant-specific vaccine in the future. Uh, Immediately, we don't have money to order more of the very effective monoclonal treatments. So in addition to the Pfizer pills, the monoclonal treatments have been very effective at keeping people out of the hospital Already, we've had to cut back allocations to our state partners by 30%, so we preserve the inventory that we do have. Welcome to In the Bubble. This is your host, Andy Slavitt. That voice you heard was from our exclusive interview today with Jeff Zients, who leads the COVID response out of the White House. Jeff was kind enough to come on our show, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But he's essentially laying out what's at stake for you uh, and for us, because the country has not properly funded our COVID response from the Congress. And we're going to get into that today. I'm talking to you on my iPhone. It's amazing how much the thing can do. And it better be because it's $45,000 now. Did you know that the iPhone 13 is $45,000? No, it's not $45,000, but it was a lot of money. I broke my iPhone over the weekend, and it's a good thing I got a new one because then the contraption that looks like it was built in 1974 that I use to normally record these episodes, like, stopped working. Um, And so I'm recording this on my iPhone. So if it sounds a bit different to you, well, maybe you're listening to it on the iPhone, and maybe it's all the same. You feel like we're talking to each other on my iPhone, it's like a phone conversation. But these iPhones, I swear to God, they can, this iPhone 13, it does things before I think about it, which, which is great. It's great. It's not, it's not great, but it is what it is. So this show, uh, we're going to talk to Jeff Science, and then we're going to talk to Zeke Emanuel. Uh, and Jeff is going to talk to us about the congressional funding issue, and uh, we're thrilled to bring you that conversation. I will say this. You'll notice that Jeff and I are friends, and there's a little bit of a thing about this show when you listen to interviews, and I think it's probably a double-edged sword, which is, on the one hand, I think it helps us get interviews, 
that other people may not be able to get, and and uh, maybe that's the good thing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, maybe you say, "Hey, Andy, you're not as tough on this person," and so I've got to do better and figure it out. I hope that I use our friendship um, appropriately to bring you the information you need and ask him questions and have people comfortable. But I also, um, you know, uh, understand that I've got to make sure that I'm asking the the tough questions. Feedback welcome, particularly positive feedback. After that uh, is uh, Zeke Emanuel, who's been on the show before. Zeke is a really amazing person to talk to about what's going on with his budget request and why we're not funding the defense against this pandemic, uh, because he's both a public health expert and he was at the Office of Management and Budget under Obama. So he understands how the budget works. He understands the question of like why, after we've spent 93% of the money and we need more still, because guess what? We're still in the middle of the pandemic. And guess what? We are going to need money for boosters and for medications and for drugs and to vaccinate the world. Like, why wouldn't Congress just be like, oh, yeah, duh. So we do ask the questions. Has there been an accounting? Have we given the Congress the information they need? Or what are, what are the reasons that Congress isn't doing this? And we get into it. We get inside uh, this topic. And Zeke is great. He has also led an effort, uh, as you'll hear, to define the things that need to happen next in our country, the United States, around COVID and the COVID response. He brought together the best experts, really some of the best experts, many of them guests on this show, former guests on this show, and put together a really comprehensive plan on all things that need to happen next. And so you come for the newsy bit about Congress, but the really fun part of the interview I found when I'm talking to Zeke is I, we go at rapid fire every single topic related to the pandemic. Boom, 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 boom. And Zeke, who um, is not shy, um, will come at us with, Every answer we want to hear and his opinion about everything that happens next that we need to think about in this next stage. Okay, first, uh, before we get to Zeke, though, l- let me just bring up Jeff. Uh, look, we're, we're catching you uh, in between meetings, so I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, I can picture you uh, in, in the West Wing with the work that you do, which which has just been incredible. Uh, hundreds of millions are vaccinated because of the work that you and the team are done. Uh, but you've relied on Congress to help get that done, I assume. So I think most of us understand that uh, there's been a proposal in front of Congress that, that, that has not yet been funded uh, to continue the work of fighting this pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what those funds are for? Sure. Now, you're right, Andy, in that Congress providing funds uh, and support has been critical uh, to this effort since day one. You know, I do think uh, due to the whole of government effort, partnership with governors and local officials, the private sector, you know, we are in a much better place than we were a year ago with over 215 million people fully vaccinated. You know, we have very effective treatments now, including the Pfizer pill, which is 90 percent effective at keeping people out of the hospital if they do get COVID. We have more testing capacity. We have free mask available. So we have the tools uh, to protect Americans and also to be prepared for whatever the virus might bring, including the possibility of a future variant. And having these tools, the vaccines, the tests, the treatments, that's not nice to have, that's need to have. 
And we need funding to ensure that we have the tools and to ensure that we are prepared, funding from Congress. Uh, the amount of funding is um, billions of dollars, but at the same time, the cost of being unprepared or not having the tools is many, many multiples of that. So right now, we don't have enough money uh, for fourth doses if they're called for, booster shots, additional booster shots for all Americans. We don't have the funding if we were to need a uh, variant-specific vaccine in the future. Uh, immediately, we don't have money to order more of the very effective monoclonal treatments. So in addition to the Pfizer pills, the monoclonal treatments have been very effective at keeping people out of the hospital. Already, we've had to cut back allocations to our state partners by 30%. So we preserve the inventory that we do have. Um, and then, you know, as, as you know, Andy, uh, this virus knows no borders. So the, the, the president and the U.S. has led the global efforts to vaccinate the world. Uh, we are donating 1.2 billion doses to the world. We've already shipped 500 million to 113 different countries. And this, you know, the variants to date have started outside of our borders. Getting the globe vaccinated is really important. And we've run out of money to uh, help get shots in arms across the globe. Uh, so we need money to continue to lead the world in getting the world vaccinated. And it's really Congress's job now to provide those funds to pass the $22.5 billion in emergency funds so that we can continue to keep Americans protected, prepare for whatever the virus could bring in the future, and continue our efforts to vaccinate the world. Okay, so so I think what I heard from you is we need to purchase um, more of the treatments that we could use to take care of immunocompromised. Um, we need to purchase more COVID tests, which, which we'll need to do over the summer uh, in the fall. Um, if there's a fourth dose authorized by the FDA, then you will need money to purchase that. Um, and of course, we've got people around the globe who are vaccinating people every day, it sounds like, uh, from USAID and funding these vaccines, and we'll need money for that. So I guess it's a good thing, though, that there's no BA2 or no wave coming so the Congress doesn't have to worry because the pandemic's over, right? Well, first of all, Andy, that was a very good summary. Um, you're, you're, you captured it well. That's exactly uh, why we need Congress to act. Uh, but you're right. I, there's you know, the possibility of increased cases here. Uh, there's also the possibility of a new variant, as we talked about earlier, in the future. And without funding, we will be unprepared. Uh, for that uh, possibility of increased cases and, and severity uh, and hospitalizations. Uh, we won't have the monoclonals, as we talked about before. Uh, we would not be able to purchase, if authorized by the FDA, a fourth dose or a variant-specific booster, if that's authorized or called for. Our testing capacity, uh, which we've worked to, to really expand, there's hundreds of millions of at-home tests available each month, uh, we have a good inventory at this point, but we risk that if we don't continue to invest in testing capacity. Uh, so we could run short of tests, treatments, vaccines if Congress fails to act. And I think BA2 is a reminder uh, that this fact that this uh, virus has proven to be unpredictable and we have to be prepared for all scenarios. Uh, so it's really important that we invest now, have the tools and be prepared for any possibility. See. I thought Congress was going to wait until the pandemic was over before pretending it never happened, rather than in the middle of it, uh, not, not providing uh, the funding. Now, you don't need to comment on that. Um, 
that's just my own uh, my own sense. I mean, it's easy to understand how people could say, hey, when this is passed, we really need to make the case how we need to be prepared for the future. Uh, but in this case, you're talking about a future that is months away, weeks away in some cases. Uh, so it's very, very important. So what are you, what are you hearing, you know, when you, when you place calls to talk to senators and, and congresspeople? Do they, do they get it? Do they understand? Um, are they sympathetic? Do you feel some sense of uh, of hope that there's a path? You know, I do, I do, Andy, in that, you know, I talk to members of the House and the Senate, Republicans, Democrats. I think people understand um, how much progress we've made, yet, as, as you keep emphasizing correctly, that the pandemic uh, is not over, that we have you know, entered a new moment uh, where we can move forward safely if we have the tools and we have the resources to make sure that we're prepared. Um, at the same time, I think it's where, where Congress is, uh, is struggling is how to, how to pass this bill and how to fund it. Uh, you know, we believe this should be passed on an emergency basis. That's how uh, COVID money has been done in the past. So without any offsets or pay-fors, if you will. And there's, as I said, um, precedent for that. You know, if, if there isn't uh, an insistence on finding offsets, it needs to be, they need to be found soon um, in that this situation is urgent. Uh, 93% of the money that was allocated for COVID response, direct COVID response, has been spent. Um, so there's very little left and remaining funds are for areas like you know, medical care for veterans or FEMA disaster relief. So we don't have uh, good resources to draw on from uh, the prior uh, allocated funds. And we need to make sure that this gets funded. So it's up to Congress to either pass it on an emergency basis without all, without offsets or find viable offsets. But the important thing, and I think it's come, you know, it's clear across the last 10 minutes of us talking, is we need this money. We need it urgently to make sure we're prepared and we continue to protect the American people. And so the House is out uh, right now, but is there a sense that they can act urgently? Do they have the vehicle? And I think for the for the people who are listening to this show who love getting involved and making sure that people um, really, uh, their elected representatives understand what's at stake, is there a sense that, that there's an action that can be taken uh, pretty quickly? Yeah, I think so, Andy, in that, you know, we've been uh, talking to Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate, and again, Republicans and Democrats, uh, for months now, and uh, made clear that the funding uh, would be uh, at the stage we're at now in March that we'd be running out and that we need it for tests and treatments and vaccines. And we've shared all the backup data on how the money's been spent. So I think Congress uh, has what it needs. And we know that Congress can can act quickly when it needs to, when things are urgent. And this is clearly uh, urgent. And we um, uh, really want Congress to, to focus on this. We're doing all we can to support them to do so. And the consequences are, are severe, and we're already starting to see those consequences as we've had to cut back on monoclonal treatments and on, on, on uh, an important fund that helps uninsured people get coverage for treatments and testing. So we're already seeing consequences, and we really need Congress to act quickly. Well, Jeff, I know you're in the middle of the day, so I really appreciate you coming on and joining. One thing that I know about you, I know a bunch of things about you, which I won't say, but one thing I know about you is how much you don't like being the center of attention. You don't like praise. And so I'm going to ask you to suffer for 30 seconds 
when I tell you uh, a lot of nice things are being said about you and the work that you've done and the work that you've led. And uh, all of it I read and I smile because it's true. But I want to just say what incredibly dear and kind person you are and what a great team leader you are. And um, I had the privilege of working for you and with you a couple of different times. And um, I can just say there's, there's very few better people to be in a foxhole with than you, Jeff. Well, Andy, uh, a couple of reactions. Um, first of all, you're way too kind and too generous. Second, um, sort of right back at you. Um, I'll be in a foxhole with you any day. But I think what, what has made this possible is the tremendous team, the cross-government, whole-of-government effort uh, with outstanding individuals working night and day and as a team across government. And I think, you know, with our state and local partners, with the private sector, um, it's made a huge difference. Uh, and that's what's led to us being in the position where we're in, where people can begin to return to their more normal routines. And we, and we have a plan to move forward um, safely. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the benefits here also is I, I hope that we've begun to restore some trust in government, that government can tackle uh, the biggest problems and make a real difference. I think this has been a case study in doing just that. So thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, Andy, for being Andy. There. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, so we, we, we actually just got off the phone with Jeff, uh, and I, we called him to figure out, um, it seems odd that Congress um, has not funded our ability to continue to fight the uh, pandemic. As far as I know, the pandemic's still going on. Is that your impression? Oh, absolutely. It looks, you know, while deaths are coming down, there's still over a thousand a day, um, which is about... Uh, seven to 10 times more than you would want for endemic COVID. Um, and we have uh, BA2 circulating, uh, which has to make you very nervous that we're going to have another surge. How big? Who knows? 
So you're you're one of the very few people that's both an expert on public health and Washington. I guess to the extent that you can be an expert on Washington, at least you know how the place works. So it seems like an obvious thing to be funding right now. I can understand if we were two years from now and saying, hey, let's fund pandemic preparedness, then I expect a little amnesia from Congress. What, what, so what's going on? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, fatigue. Uh, people are tired. You can see this all across the country. Um, uh, walking out, people have taken their mask off, even in large crowds. They've taken their mask off indoors. Um, they want to believe it's past us. And I think uh, politicians respond to that. You've seen all the states uh, remove mask mandates for that reason. Second, I think um, it's how Washington works. We're now into midterm season and politics and campaigning and drawing lines in the sand. Um, and I don't think uh, we're into, you know, this is a bigger national interest. This is an emergency. Um, you know, and truth be told, it doesn't feel like an emergency, even if it remains an emergency. A uh, thousand deaths a day, let's just put it in context, is, you know, over 350,000 deaths a year, uh, which certainly makes uh, COVID uh, the number three or four killer after heart disease, cancer, and, you know, stroke plus or minus, uh, depending on how you want to count that. Um, and I just think, you know, we've lost perspective. So how do we gain perspective back? I mean, in your in your normal quiet way, Zeke, <laughs> I say this because Zeke and I are, are old friends and um, he's about as quiet as I am actually less so. Um, you, you decided to write a letter to Congress and got a bunch of people on board to sign it, uh, including me. Which, tell us a little about, about the letter you authored and what, what your points you're trying to make. We were very chagrined, and by we, I mean me and 200 of my closest friends, were very chagrined by the fact that here we are still fighting this pandemic, still more than a 1,000 deaths a day, facing another potential surge. I mean, there's almost no expert who doesn't think we're going to have a surge. The only question we're arguing about, and no one has any basis on which to make a better or worse prediction, is how big is that surge going to be? You can make arguments on both sides. And Congress is being asked to fund $15 billion or $50 per person and can't seem to come up with the money and is stalling. And as you say, lots of things are at stake. Um, we have, you know, the fact that we're don't have enough money for monoclonals. We can see we're going to run out of them and therefore we're the federal government's already rationing them. In early April, the ability of doctors and healthcare systems to care for people who don't have insurance for COVID, that money goes away. Uh, by May, uh, we won't have enough uh, Evashield for people who are immunocompromised. If in fact, we really do need a fourth dose, even for some of our population, we don't have money to buy that. And I'm not even talking about, you know, pushing on long COVID, next generation vaccines, the therapeutics, the multi-drug therapy we need, the surveillance systems we need going forward so that we can carefully monitor for new variants. We can monitor for another outbreak. These are, I mean, $15 billion is chump change in most of our views. I mean, if you look at some, you know, I, 
I have a certain advantage in that, you know, I worked in the Office of Management and Budget, so I know something about federal budgeting, and I have some sense for what we need for COVID. You know, $15 billion is nowhere near enough, um, and it's a very, very wise expenditure. And so it's extremely frustrating that we can't seem to, as a nation, say this is a top priority. It's beyond politics. And, you know, we've already seen almost everything is gotten so heavily politicized, whether it's Ukraine or, you know, Supreme Court justices. There doesn't seem to be anything which with which people are willing to put down political affiliation and say, you know, there's a national interest. There's a collectivity here that we have to invest in if we want it to thrive and be a world power. And, and that's what's, I think, super frustrating. And I, I think anyone in um, the Biden administration uh, or a leader in Congress trying to get the country to do the right thing on this, it ha- has to be like scratching their head and, you know, where has common sense and rationality gone? And look, I mean, we got caught not being prepared for the pandemic when it arrived the first time. Feels like inexcusable, but understandable. But being caught by surprise during the second going in the third year of the pandemic uh, feels willful, right? <laughs> yes, it does. It does feel uh, tra- like it would be tragedy. And I think that would be a disaster. Um, but I take it that there's a political calculation here. If, you know, we have a, not enough tests and people are clamoring for tests, uh, we have a lot of uh, hospitals full, people will blame Biden and the Republicans won't, who held up the funding, won't be blamed. I think that's got to be the political calculation. And the only, I mean, I really do think the question is, is there anything we can rise above politics on? Uh, and if it's not this, it uh, doesn't seem to be Ukraine. Um, you know, maybe the answer is in 2022, it's all politics and it's all hand-to-hand combat and it's there's no national interest that we can rally around. So let's try to figure out how to win the politics. I mean, you put this letter together. What are you hearing? Are you hearing anything from members of Congress, from the Senate, from Hill, from staff? Um, is there either a... Because I, I, I would say that like I haven't seen even advocates being very outspoken about this on the Hill. I mean, even people who I would expect to vote for this being very outspoken about it. Um, and it, it, you know, it feels like um, it's almost been brushed aside to say, well, look, we're focusing on Ukraine. We're, we're focusing on inflation. Too many problems. I do think that there's an element of too many problems. But one of the things that I certainly think is important uh, for uh, people you know, who have decision-making authority is to distinguish the urgent from the important. Um, lots of things seem urgent, but only a few things are really, really important. There's no doubt Ukraine is super important. Um, and I do think that much of the United States prestige is tied up with Ukraine and making sure Ukraine doesn't lose. But the pandemic is also really, really important. Um, and we should not think, well, it's just them, uh, because it's not just them. And when hospitals get over full, it's all of us who suffer. Um, when parts of the country have large surges and outbreaks, you know, it could be that another variant is going to brew there and not overseas. 
Um, and I think we have to understand what's important. We have two exceedingly important items, COVID and uh, Ukraine. And also, you know, Andy, both of those feed into the other problem which people worry about, which is the economy, inflation, et cetera. If we could get a handle on COVID, we would certainly have not completely solved the problem of uh, the economy and inflation, but certainly get a strong handle on it because a lot of the supply chain snafus would be better if not totally resolved. Yeah. I mean, in listening to Jeff, and I know you've spoken with him as well, and I'm glad the audience got to hear from him before we just started this conversation, it feels like they've got a pretty linear accounting of what they've been spending their money on. It's like 93% of the dollars are already spent. Um, it's been very clear, and in case it wasn't clear, you made it clear in the letter you wrote exactly what won't get funded and when. Um, it, you know, it's not all that mysterious. In, in, your, in your mind, the way these things play out, assume nothing, um, but do you feel like this eventually finds a path, whether it's the emergency path, whether it's with pay-fors, without pay-fors? Do you feel like people will be forced to the table or will the only thing that force people to deal with this issue is just rapid surges and more trouble? I do think eventually this happens. The only question is when. Um, and I think for the reason you said, uh, obviously your experience coming through here too, which is, look, if we have a surge and people can't get Evershield or we run out of monoclonals or we run out of Plaxivid, um, people will demand money and the people who've been holding it up will cave and vote for it. The question is, between now and then, are we going to be able to get allocation, spend money wisely? One of the things that always frustrated me when I was in Washington and in the government was, you know, the stop, start, stop, start. Yes. You know, people always say, and you especially hear this from Republicans, we've got to run the government like a business. Well, no <laughs> business would run stop, start, stop, start. It is totally inefficient and That's totally so ridiculous way of uh, operating, and yet that's what we're being put through. Right, uh, right. And it wastes a lot of money, by the way. And it means that we're not prepared um, in a smooth way. You know, right now, if you were running the government like a business, you would want your supply chains as open as possible. You would want to have a stockpile of critical elements. You would want to be investing in the next generation, whatever it is, for worries about supply chain disruption that are, you know, could come because of Ukraine, could come because of China. Who knows? That's an I mean, China point. itself is facing a serious, serious potential threat from Omicron. And who knows? They may be have, having to shut lots of factories and upsetting the supply chain once again. Right. It's like an own goal, right? I mean, there's enough challenges that we, we're creating our own. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. 
we all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. You're actually the perfect person to be pushing this, not just because you ran the healthcare portfolio at the Office of Management and Budget, and not just because you're a public health expert, but because a couple of months ago, you started pushing um, both behind the scenes and publicly for a broad plan around the next steps and the next action in the pandemic. And I'm wondering if we could just shift the conversation to talk about that and talk about some of the content uh, behind that and some of the people involved in the process, because I think well, first of all, maybe you start with what you were trying to say, um, because we were we were kind of the Omicron way was in the process of starting to come down, and you came out and and, and said something which got a lot of attention. So, um, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, people who were on the Biden COVID transition advisory board, we've continued to meet because. We learn a lot from each other. We don't always agree, but we learn a lot from each other. You know, how do you interpret this data? What are you seeing in your neck of the woods? And and we wrote a series of articles in JAMA about how we, in this, as we're entering the third year, really need to begin thinking about living with COVID because we're not getting rid of it. That's become quite clear. It's not clearly a seasonal event. We're going to have to live with it. Well, what does it mean to live with? What is the kind of responses you need to have available if you're going to live with COVID? That was our thinking. And part of what we said is, you know, we need another strategic plan. We've been running a strategic plan for a year, which is focused on getting people vaccinated. Um, And that's, you know, we did a really good job, but we need the next um, plan. And that has to look at the whole forefront of what we can do as a government. And so it occurred to me, you know, it was Christmas Day and it was, occurred to me, it's like, you know, we need a strategic plan. We're, f- we're relatively free, certainly compared to the White House people who were dealing with every fire and at that point, huge fire around Omicron and a huge problem with getting enough tests in the country that we could develop uh, uh, a strategic plan. And so a bunch of us got together. What's a strategic plan for getting to the next normal? What are the things we need to do, whether it's vaccines or testing or surveillance or schools or indoor air quality or workforce issues that we need to do? And, and that's what we put together. And we also wanted to say, what is um, the likelihood we're going to have a serious surge, uh, intermediate surge, or we're going to have a best case scenario where, you know, cases in, of uh, 
of uh, coronavirus are going to go down, and we're actually going to get to a pretty normal state uh, within the next 12 months. So we, you know, we game planned it out and, and looked at all those things. And I think it was trying to help government so everyone in government would sing from the same songbook and everyone would know what everyone else was doing. That was our basic idea. Not that we were going to get everything right, because one of the things we've learned in in uh, COVID is, you know, you can't bat a thousand. Uh, even batting 750 is pretty hard. Um, but you can sort of get uh, a wide systematic look that'll be mostly right. So this kind of puts you in an interesting position, Zeke. In some ways, at least at the current moment, at least for some time period, you are kind of the uber knower of what to expect and what the public can and might expect and what we should be thinking about and planning for in this living with COVID phase. And I think when you say living with COVID, it means different things to different people. To some people, that's a scary thought. To some people, it's kind of a comforting thought. Uh, to some people, um, they just don't know because it's it's very ambiguous Given that you're now in this sort of uber position where you're seeing the whole playing field, tell us, tell the public kind of how to think about what's ahead based on the best knowledge you've been able to see. So I think what's ahead is a sort of intermediate uh, situation where we're going to have surges. How big? I think we don't know. They could be um, very serious. And, and we put a probability of about 40% on a very serious surge with a lot of deaths. Compare very serious, like, would that be like a, a, a Delta, an Omicron level surge? Uh, it could be an Omicron level surge um, with about 250,000 deaths uh, a year. Um, and again, I, I'm a little hesitant Andy, because there are things we can do, actually do, that will decrease that impact. Um, one of them is get vaccines and, and boosters to, to people over 65, which would be really important. I mean, yeah. it, only but, about 29%. But, but, I kind of feel like, but I kind of feel like we sort of know the limitations on what's practical to do at this point. I mean, I feel that's less of a guess, given public attitudes and uh, and so forth. I mean, yes, there's, I, I some agree. Of it, I, I would say some of it's public attitude, some of it's trying a different um, rollout, if if you will. I mean, so sure. one of the things, I'll just say, one of the things we strongly emphasize in this report is we should have a, a, a mini a division of uh, community healthcare workers to get to people who are vulnerable and not so easily contacted. I yes. think that's something that could change uh, some okay. of these parameters. I, I'm going to give you. We could we can change ten percentage or so, um, but but I but I think the broad buckets you're creating are very helpful. And I'll I'll stipulate that yes, we can improve uh, to some degree incrementally. But can you give us the other sixty percent? You got forty percent that was not really not not pretty. It's two hundred fifty thousand yes. deaths a year. Yeah. What's the other sixty percent look like? A 50% chance of sort of intermediate, 10% of a really good, you know, it's not going to be a problem. It's going to be flu-like. And actually, uh, given the precautions we have, we're actually going to do even better than a, a, a sort of severe flu year. The real, I think, unknown and the thing which motivates, uh, I think, a big portion of the population is long COVID. We don't know enough about long COVID. We don't know if you have 
two shots in, uh, uh, or three shots, what are your chances of getting long COVID? How severe is it? And I think if we had an answer to those questions and it turned out, you know, you get three shots, your chance of dying is one in 30, 35,000, and your chance of long COVID is one in 10, 12,000, then, you know, COVID would be kind of like flu. We would have to protect the vulnerable, but most of us could go around without real worry. The problem is we don't know the long COVID thing. And when I go around, I I hear from a lot of people, that's what they're obsessed by because it's so frightening. Brain fog, fatigue, shortness of breath on a chronic basis, not being able to get out of bed. You know, no one wants to risk that. That ruins your life. But if you knew, eh, that's not going to really happen. Um, I think people would say, all right, you know, given Omicron, given three shots, the low risks of serious illness and complication. I'm willing to, you know, live a normal life, take that mask off. And it, I do think that would make a big, big difference. Is that embedded in your middle 40% scenario that the scenario where COVID on an acute basis is reasonably reduced in terms of hospitalizations, but that long COVID is a more material threat than the kind of odds you just gave? Uh, that would be that would make a, a very serious problem, I think, going forward, because I think people wouldn't know how to uh, live like that. If you said, look, your chances are one in 20 of getting long COVID, even with three shots, people would like, I'm not taking those odds of brain fog. That's just like, that's how, that sounds too much like Russian roulette for, I think, a lot of people. And that, I think, is where we're at. We simply don't know the answer to that question. And, you know, from our group said, that is a top priority question. It's an emergency to get the answer to that question. And the NIH has to put uh, the pedal to the metal to get that answer. And it shouldn't be hard because we do have probably several million people at least who have long COVID. Yeah, well, and and, million, and, and some number of people who've been um, uh, infected. Yes. So the, the, the math the math should be there. Easy. It feels like, yeah, and it feels like people kind of wave away the long COVID um, thing to some degree at this stage for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, we just had um, Senator Tim Kaine on, on the program who you may have heard him describe oh, his yeah. symptoms um, that he still has. And I'd heard him talk about him before, but he got him this show. And if you haven't listened to this episode, uh, folks, you, you should just yeah. listen to it. The symptoms he is describing, I thought they were intermittent. They're not. They're 24 by 7. He is never in a state where he's not feeling these symptoms. Now, he would tell you that these symptoms he's able to get through his life and um, and and he's he really is not asking for sympathy. He's actually asking people to pay attention to people who have it worse than he does. Um, but I, I can't imagine a 24 by 7 rate. And by the way, his case of COVID, now it was pre-vaccinations, but his case of COVID was one where he didn't really experience symptoms during the acute phase. Yeah, mild. So I, I, I think that's 100% right. And even if he can get through the day, what is drained out is the joy of life because you are basically keeping these symptoms at bay and you're never feeling vigorous, 100% really in it. And I think that is the problem. And that's the fear of many, many people. They don't want to experience that. Um, and they don't even want to run the risk of, yeah. a, re a reasonable risk of it. 
Let me voice the voice of the COVID, do my best to voice the voice of the COVID skeptic, the COVID cynic, the Tucker Carlson, the, t- the COVID curious, someone, uh, Bill, Bill Hannage on the show called it the COVID curious, who would say, you guys keep moving the goalposts. First, you told us we had to push out the curve to prevent a lot of hospitalizations. Then you told us it was about uh, deaths. Now, now you're telling us about, about this, that since all those things, once all those things stop being problems, and I'm not saying that there are not, no, those things are no longer problems. I'm saying that this is the voice of the cynic. Now you're saying, oh, no, 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 no. We have to do everything we can to prevent COVID because of some long-term effects that are very hard to measure. Respond, respond to that criticism. So, first of all, I don't think that's true. What I want to know is, what are the risks of long COVID? And the second thing is, you should remember, if it's long COVID, if it's very frequent, and we have 60, 70 million people who've had COVID, and it's very frequent, you will have a huge healthcare bill, a huge disability bill, lots of people not in your workforce, you will have a major economic shock to the United States. And so don't dismiss this and say, you know, you're just moving the goalposts. This is something that, again, many of us have been worrying about for months and months and months. And what we really need is information on which to know how big a problem this is or is not. We're not saying you got to move the goalposts. We're saying, please tell us or get us the data on, is this a problem that we have to worry about? Or do we have a solution for the problem? It's called vaccination or therapeutics or what have you. Okay, so just to, to close up, I think it might be fun and interesting uh, to take to do some very top lines, kind of a, I want to say a lightning rod of, I, if I give you a key word, and you know, you guys have done a bunch of work on what could and should happen here, what people should expect, um, some sense of, okay, a set, maybe it's a sentence or two. Like if I say the word schools, like school closings, like do you have a general sense of, of, of how to keep schools open and when schools should be closed and is that a risk again? Uh, it shouldn't be a risk. They should be the last thing to close because uh, kids learning is so important and in-person is so critical to it. And the second thing we need to do to make sure that happens is to improve, dramatically improve the indoor air quality of every classroom in America. Okay. Masks recommended versus masks when masks should be required, if they should ever be required again. Oh, they should be required again if the number of cases goes up and you're in the presence of someone who can't be vaccinated because they're immunocompromised or they're a child and it's not approved for them. Lockdowns ever again? Uh, I could see that only in super extreme cases and probably not from COVID. Uh, boosters, frequently to prevent infection or, or only for the most compromised populations? My suspicion is we're going to need, forget the booster issue, we're going to need a mix and match. We're going to need different, com- not only mRNA, you're going to need mRNA with protein vaccine, and that's going to give you the best protection. And you might then need uh, a booster every year, every second year. Um, but I don't think the idea of every six-month booster, which some people are trying to propagate, is, is realistic. Test and treat and Paxlovid, should this be something that's ubiquitous, or do you worry about the effects of people developing immunity to, to things like Paxlovid, and it should be reserved only for people at serious risk? Uh, well, I am worried about resistance. And second, I do think for that reason, uh, you have to uh, develop a multi-drug cocktail and you can't just rely on Paxlovid 
On the other hand, we do need to use it for people who are at a reasonable risk of getting serious infection. That's what it's developed for. You don't develop a very important intervention and not use it. Variant specific vaccines. Um, I don't see at the moment that we are going to use them. We should develop them and we should be able to develop rapidly the mRNA. But as I said, I think the solution out of this is going to be a mix and match where we're going to have several different uh, vaccines uh, developed uh, that are going to provide wider and longer lasting coverage. We just don't know what they are because, again, we haven't done that research, but we need to do it urgently. Investments in air quality. You touched on this related to school what else should we be doing? Oh, we should change our building code so that every building being built going forward, and we should measure the indoor air quality and grade buildings and put that grade out just like they do on restaurants. You know, this is an A restaurant, totally clean. This is a B restaurant, really needs some work so that people can begin using uh, the power of uh, uh, public uh, shaming to get buildings to upgrade their air quality. How we should think about the extent and the limits to U.S. funding global vaccinations? I think uh, the issue now is distribution and administration, and we have to help countries uh, with that because it's going to be important to keep variants uh, from developing and therefore keeping America safe. Okay, here's a curveball. I'm not sure if you even addressed it, but uh, I know it's one that's passionate of yours and mine. Dealing with the mental health um, consequences of the last couple of years? A huge problem, and we don't have the workforce for it, so we're going to have to develop novel ways of delivering mental health care. But again, this is a huge problem, which is just, you know, it's like an iceberg, just below the surface. Lots and lots of people are suffering, and they don't know what to do with it. But we're going to have to train more people to uh, develop group therapy and other therapies. How about any reforms to the way we do public health communication and coordination, including at the CDC? Um, any changes you'd like to see there? Absolutely. We need better messages. We need much more uh, response. And we also, we need a national response um, on misinformation. And it's not just focused on public health. We've got to stop the uh, uh, media bubble that people live in and uh, break down those algorithms and prevent them from uh, allowing people to just hear the same message over and over again. That's not good for uh, having a national dialogue. And you've already talked about long COVID. Is there anything else, any other major pillar that I missed that you think is a fundamental component of I, what's I, I think the, the, the workforce, the healthcare workforce, is something that really needs attention. They've been working for two years straight. Uh, a lot of people are burned out and fried. And I think uh, bolstering them is going to be really important as we go forward. You can already see it in England that, that they're having mm. shortages in hospitals. It, it's a major problem. Well, all this stuff takes funding, which brings us back to where we started. And, you know, it's, it's something that we are a wealthy country. Uh, we are a country that can and should ad ad debate our priorities. Uh, people like you and me are used to winning and losing battles uh, all the time based on what we think the right priorities are. But over time, winning, this is a particularly weird situation uh, because we have um, actual um, known events to respond to, let alone, I think, a smart strategic way of thinking about things that you put out in your plan and that uh, the White House, when they put out their plan, subsequently uh, put out. Jeff, who was on the beginning of the show, released a plan, which we will we'll link to both your plan and the White House plan uh, in our show notes. 
but but very fundamentally important. I think it's I love it about the way you work, Zeke, which is, you know, you think both big and immediate at the same time. And uh, I don't know where you get the energy, man. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate it. And I couldn't agree with you more. We need to fund these priorities. Oh, by the way, one other thing I want to say, and I think I told you this before, but we need to include this in the show. Um, let, sometime in 2020, we had you on the show. And then following that, we had someone named Rahm Emanuel on the show. Huh. I'm not sure which order. I'm not sure which order it was on. Maybe we had you then him. Um, maybe you do, and I, I don't remember which order. But if you look at it from a purely listenership standpoint, both those shows did very well. Your show did significantly better than this character, Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> Sibling rivalry, always present. Okay, I want to thank Jeff. I want to thank Zeke. I want to thank you for listening. Hopefully this brought you up to speed on this topic. And can I just say, it's it's just crazy that we haven't funded this yet. And um, I'm going to be continuing to work on it. So, as are they. Next episode, coming up Monday, a person that I've been dying to talk to, and I think it's going to be an amazing interview, Rachel Levine, who is the Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. government, and she is the highest-ranking trans woman in, I think, the history of U.S. government and the first four-star trans woman. And she won't be the last. And then Ken Burns, the documentarian who we know from uh, his documentaries around the Civil War and baseball and so many other things. Really, really interesting guy. Pleasure to have him on the show. We had a great conversation about a new documentary he's releasing about Ben Franklin, who, by the way, um, had a really, really interesting role to play in inoculations, vaccinations. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but all kinds of other interesting stuff. And then we're going to get into long COVID. Uh, but we're going to go back to our interview with Senator Tim Kaine, who has uh, been suffering the consequences, as apparently have a number of his colleagues in the Senate and House, of long COVID. And we're going to get into that. I know that was a topic that you heard Zeke talk quite a bit about today. Uh, and we're going to go further on long COVID. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you have a really wonderful rest of the week. Thanks for listening to In the Bubble. Hope you rate us highly on your podcast apps. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Chrissy Pease and Alex McCohen produce our show. Our mix is by Ivan Kuryev and Veronica Rodriguez. Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax are the executive producers of this show. We love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Malad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media. And you can find me at aslavitt on Twitter or at Andy Slavitt on Instagram. If you do like what you heard today, please tell your friends and please stay safe, share some joy. We will definitely get through this together.
In 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since then, it's been a barrage of bad news. But behind the bleak headlines, there are people working to protect our right to control our future. The Defenders is a new 10-part series about the fight for freedom in a post-Roe America. Co-hosted by Samantha Bee and me, Gloria Riviera, the show will examine ways people are still accessing care, from crossing state borders to self-managed abortion. You'll hear from activists, providers, and everyday people doing the work to expand reproductive freedom. We're here to tell you, anyone can become a Defender. The Defenders is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners, too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, whatever you get your podcasts.